Thank you, Dan, and instrumentalists and choir for beautiful worship today. Turn your Bible to Psalm 34 as well as Revelation 4. Psalm 34 as well as Revelation 4. We'll be looking at both of these passages and other passages, but I'd like for you to have those two uh, open in your Bible. Triskaidekaphobia. Anybody know what that one is? A uncanny fear of the number 13. Triskaidekaphobia. You know, most buildings don't have a 13th floor because some of you have triskaidekaphobia, and when you found out your office was on that floor, you wouldn't be able to handle it. Or actually, Joel, what you suffer from is bathophobia. That is a fear of depths, fear of anything that is deep and, and below us. It could be heights or depth. Algophobia, a fear of pain. Doctors and dentists know a lot of patients with algophobia, a fear of pain. Misophobia, a fear of dirt. If you don't like to be dirty or grimy, you have misophobia. I have a little bit of that, a fear of dirt. Agrophobia, can you guess that one from the agra? Agrophobia, a fear of public, fear of being in public spaces and being around uh, a, lot of, a lot of people. Nyctophobia, everyone as a child has a little bit of nyctophobia, a fear of the dark, fear of being in dark places. Or there is ecclesiophobia. I'm uh, trusting that you don't have ecclesiophobia if you're here this morning. Our Greek scholars will know that, that is a fear of church. And uh, those watching by television, we hope you work through your ecclesiophobia and uh, join us really, really, really soon. And then there's something that I think all Baptists suffer from, and that's Cain. Kenotophobia, kenotophobia, and that is a fear of anything new or different. Kenotophobia. There's a, a lot of that in our congregation. And then panophobia, you're scared of everything. If you have panophobia, you are afraid of everything. So, what are you afraid of? If I were to ask you today to isolate the central themes of Scripture, I'm, I'm sure that you could do well. And one of you might say, well, I see creation as a central theme in Scripture. We begin with a story of creation, and we sort of end with a story of a new heaven and a new earth. And so it seems to me, Pastor, that creation is the dominant theme of God's Word. Someone else might say that it's sacrifice and grace beginning with the sacrifice of Abel all the way to the sacrifice of the Christ on the cross. Clearly, that's the central theme. And the Exodus, sacrifice and grace. Sacrifice and grace. Well, someone else might say, no, I don't think it's creation. I don't, I don't think it's sacrifice and grace. I think that the central theme is covenant. We begin with God having a covenant with Abraham, and God had a covenant with Moses, and God had a covenant with all of ancient Israel, and then we have a, a new covenant in Christ. So the central theme of Scripture is covenant. Well, all of those would be excellent answers, and I could debate for you on any of those positions. But I wonder if anyone this morning, if asked to state the prevailing theme of Scripture would say, why, of course, we need to fear God. Why, of course, we need to fear God. It's staggering, although it's often missed today, just how prevalent or dominant the theme and command is that we are to fear God. Here's what the Bible says. 
If you want wisdom, if you lack wisdom, then you want to be wise, fear God. Do you want to lengthen the days of your life? What's the Bible's answer? Then fear God. Do you want God's protection? Then fear him. Do you want God's blessing? Then fear him. Do you want God's provision? Then fear him. Do you want to know the love of God? Then experience the fear of God. Do you want to bring God great pleasure? Then fear God. Do you want to learn to fear no one or no thing else in life? Then fear God. It's everywhere in Scripture. Over and over again, we're told it is the right thing, the appropriate thing to be afraid of a holy and righteous God. God says it. Moses says it. David says it. The prophets say it. The apostle Paul says it. And listen to the words of Jesus. Probably not the words of Jesus you memorized, but you know his words nonetheless. Jesus says, Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear God who is able to destroy both the, both the soul and the body in hell. Don't fear others, Jesus says. Fear my Father, fear God. Think about Moses. He sees a, a burning bush. He's told to remove his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. I'm the God of your father, Abraham. I'm the God of your father, Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. And then Exodus 3, 6. Moses hid his face because he was afraid of God. Moses was afraid of God. Or think of Isaiah. It was the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah says he saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple, and seraphim sit above him, each having six wings. And one called to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundation of the threshold began to tremble. The powerful voice called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For I have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is afraid. In the presence of worshiping God, he is afraid of God. It happens to Peter, James, and John. They're brought to a high mountain by themselves with Jesus, and Jesus is transformed, and Jesus is transfigured. His face is shining like the sun. His garments become white as light, and there with him is Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. And there's a, a thundering voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then Matthew 17, 6 says, the disciples heard the voice of God. They fell on their face because they were much afraid. They were afraid. It happened to John the Apostle. His vision on the Isle of Patmos. He hears someone speaking to him and calling him to write what he sees in a book. He sees Jesus, the Son of Man, his head and his hair were white as wool like snow. His eyes were like a, a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. 
His voice was like the voice of a, a mighty waterfall. He has a two-edged sword in his mouth. He holds seven stars in his right hand. His face is as bright as the sun. And John fell on his feet as a dead man. And the Son of Man said to him, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. John, in the presence of Jesus, was afraid. Or listen to the book of Deuteronomy. Assemble the people, men and women and children and strangers living in your towns so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord. Their children must hear the law and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land, Deuteronomy 31. We were to teach our children an awe, a respect, a fear for the Lord. I fear today that we have so focused on God's love of having an intimate and sometimes even a trite or chummy relationship with the Almighty that we have lost this prevailing theme of Scripture that we are to be in awe and respect and fear of the Lord. Well, turn to Psalm 34 and verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, his saints, for those who fear him have no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of anything. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you to fear the Lord. From Genesis to Revelation, a prevailing theme of Scripture is that we are to be awestruck and wonder and reverence of God. C.S. Lewis captures this essence in the silver chair. There's a little girl named Jill who's the central character. She develops a relationship with Aslan, the lion of Narnia, who is the Lord. It's a tender and loving relationship between little Jill and the Lord, the lion. And yet Jill had to learn, despite that intimate relationship, to respect and fear and be in awe of the lion. She encounters the lion first at a stream. He's standing there. He's huge. He's menacing. He's awesome. Are you thirsty? Asks the lion. I'm dying of thirst, little Jill says. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? She asks. Would you mind going away for a little while so I could get a drink? The lion just growled at that suggestion. She's amazed at his motionless bulk. She realized she might, have, might as well have asked a mountain to move on her behalf so she could take a drink as to ask the Lord or the lion to move. He doesn't move. Well, will you, will you promise not to do anything to me if I come and drink? I make no promises, said the lion. Jill is so thirsty by now without realizing it, she's taken a, a step closer to the stream, a step closer to the lion. Do, 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 you, do you eat little girls, she asks. <laughs> I have swallowed up girls and boys and men and women and kings and emperors and cities and realms, said the lion. It wasn't like he was bragging or apologizing. He was just saying it as if it were so. 
Well, I, I dare not come and drink then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, Jill said. I, I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. Do you and I have a reverence for God like that? Do we understand his power and his majesty? Three things. First of all, to fear God means that we ought to be in awe of God. To fear God means that we ought to be in awe of God. To be intellectually and emotionally and spiritually and physically overwhelmed by his holiness, by his power, by his purity, by his righteousness, by his justice, by his greatness, by his glory. I spoke with a friend this week who asked about the topic of this week's sermon, and I said, fearing God? He said, if you don't fear him, then you do not know him. If you don't fear him, then you do not know him. Well, turn over to Revelation chapter 4. Our song embodied this text a moment ago. Revelation 4.1. And after these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately, I, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like jasper stone and sardius in appearance. There's a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes, in the front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion. And the second was like a calf. And the third creature had a face like a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes round within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of your will they existed and were created." Throne scenes are frequent in Revelation. Forty-plus throne scenes in this last book. In Revelation, if it says anything, it, it says this. God is on his throne, and God is in absolute power. God is on his throne, and God is absolutely sovereign. 
And the one sitting on the throne does not have the face of a man, lest we think we could control or manipulate that man. Rather, it's an image of light. It's jasper stone. It's sardius in appearance. It's emerald. It's a rainbow around the throne. We begin to get colors clear and red and green. Around this throne of the Almighty are 24 smaller thrones with these elders sitting clothed in white garments with crowns on their heads, crowns which they'll give to the one on the throne. There's not a, a single human form for God anywhere in this throne room image of the Almighty. We cannot manipulate him. He is not a man. He is light. The psalmist says, Psalm 104, God is covered in light as with a garment. The garment of God is light. Paul says that the Lord is described as dwelling in unapproachable light. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the image is the same. In those 24 elders, these divine beings have a mediating function. They are the, the duty of worshiping God. They fall before him in Revelation 5. They fall before him in Revelation 11. They fall before him in Revelation 19. They have one duty, to constantly be in adoration and praise to God. And even closer are these four creatures which represent the strongest of all, the ox, the wisest of all humanity, the swiftest of all, the eagle, the noblest of all, the lion. Imagine this pills of thunder, this brightness of lightning, and without cessation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The one who was, the one who is, and the one who is yet to come. God is completely other than we are. The word holy means separate or to separate. God is separated from man. God is holy and righteous and good. It's a vision of light and sound and power and majesty. God is holy, righteous, and good. The 24 elders seem to worship God because of what he has done, that he is the creator. And the, the four creatures seem to worship him just because he was and is and is to come. It's a powerful, powerful thing. Here's the second thing I want you to see. We are to fear God and be in reverence of him. Not only in awe of him, but in reverence of him. The people of ancient Israel had a wonderful way of showing their reverence to God. The covenant name for God was Jehovah. It may be translated Yahweh or Lord with a capital L in your various translations. But it was such a sacred name, and I'm doing it in English, of course, Y-H-W-H. That's all the scribes would write. They would not even put the vowels between the consonants lest someone pronounce the name of God. We don't really even know how to say God's name. The scribes and the clerks wouldn't give us the vowels lest we misuse his name. We have filled it in with Yahweh, but we don't know. No one knows how to properly say God's name. They would simply say, my Adonai, my Lord, so as not to misuse the name of the one who is holy, 
and righteous. We need to, to reverence God like that. Bill Moyers, television journalist, tells a story of a, a man's personal response to watching the launch of Apollo shuttle, Apollo 17. It was a night launch. It was 1975, and he said, well, there were a bunch of reporters hanging out in all the bars in town drinking beer, wisecracking. They were all there to see this 35-story tall rocket actually have the countdown and, and the launch. The first thing you see when you're standing there at the launch of the Apollo 17 was this extraordinary orange light. He described it this way, I could not, my eyes could not have taken any more brightness than the brightness of that orange of the space shuttle taking off against the night. And all of a sudden, after this bright orange light, the shuttle begins to ascend in silence. The sound is seconds away. And then after you see ascending, there are the peals of thunder that come from the rocket blast, and they actually enter in you and vibrate you and move you. You can actually see and hear jaws dropping as the space shuttle ascends. A sense of wonder fills the whole place. No more wisecracking now. And then first stage ignites, and there's a beautiful blue flame like a star, and it begins to remove in, like a star across the heavens, and you realize at that moment there are human beings in that vehicle. He said people just get up and start helping each other. They're kind. They open doors for each other. They look at one another speaking the speaking quietly and interestedly. They were suddenly moral people because of the reverence and the wonder they had experienced with the space shuttle. The fear of God and the reverence of God, the light, the power, and the sound has the same impact upon us. It is an awe. It is a reverence that causes us to tremble before him, to wonder at him, and to want to be obedient and pleasing to all that he asks and desires for us. There's a third thing I want you to see. To fear God is to be afraid of disappointing him. To fear God is to be afraid of disappointing him. Pastor John Yates, pastor of the Falls Episcopal Church, tells a story about his headmaster at school. He said the headmaster was six feet six inches tall. He was totally bald. He had really broad shoulders. He had lens in his glasses that were as thick as the bottom of a Coke bottle. He had big black frames around those glasses, so 6'6", six, six, broad shoulders, bald, thick glasses you can hardly see his eyes through. And John Yates says, I've never in my life met such an awe-inspiring human being. I still haven't, he says. In fact, he telephoned me out of the blue a few years ago, and my children tell me that I jumped off the couch, stood at the floor when I realized who it was, and I said, yes, sir, all at once. It's like that with God, isn't it? We enter into an intimate relationship with God, but we are never casually familiar with God. Not a holy God like our God. He said of Mr. Duncan, his tall headmaster, he said, that man never spoke to me harshly. He always treated me kindly. In fact, he took a, a really an uncanny fatherly interest in me when I was a poor teenage boy. 
And yet he said, I could never completely relax around him. More than anything else in this world, I wanted to please that man. I wanted to come up to his expectations of me. I wanted to be what he saw in me. And I had a fear of letting him down. That's the way it is with God, isn't it? Martin Luther, the unique genius of the German Reformation, was hauled before Emperor Charles V in 1521. He was accused of disobeying the Pope, of dishonoring the church, and misrepresenting God's truth. Luther, as he stood before this august gathering, was visibly shaken. He was overwhelmed. He was asked to recant all the things that he had discovered about God and God's Word and faith and grace. In the midst of this august gathering, he asked for more time to think about it, whether or not he would take back the things he discovered about God's Word. His enemies assumed that he was overawed by the emperor. Luther was a peasant. He was a, a simple monk. He was the son of a miner. They figured he was so cowed before the presence of the prince, the lord of Austria, Burgundy, and the Low Countries, the most important man on the continent, but they were wrong. They were asking him to recant what he believed, what he taught, what he discovered about God's truth. The truth is, it was not standing up to the presence of the emperor that made Luther shake. Rather, it was a thought that both he and the emperor alike would one day be called to the throne of God to give account of what they believed and what they taught. And Luther feared God more than the prince. And he said, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to get, go against my conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Psalm 147 says, the Lord who delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Fear and love of God are, are not opposites. They are different sides of the, the same coin. If you fear God, Isaiah says, you won't have to fear anything else or anybody else. There's teenagers who have T-shirts now that say, no fear. Have you seen them? No fear. If you need to wear a T-shirt to tell me you're not afraid of anything, that tells me you're afraid of lots of things if you're having to, to broadcast that you have no fear. Fear is a healthy thing. It's a good thing. The best way I, I know to fear God is to worship Him. And that scene of His glory and His righteousness and His holiness in Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6, every time we go before the throne of God, it is a scene of worship. You are here partly because you fear, you reverence, you are in awe of God. That's a good thing to learn to fear Him, to gather with His people every week, sing praises to Him, to be in awe of Him, to be in reverence of Him. The one who loves you the most, the one who sent His Son to die in your place, the one that you don't want to disappoint or you don't want to let down. Do you remember the wise writer of Ecclesiastes? He looks at everything under life. 
He looks at philosophy. He's trying to make sense of the seasons and everything around him. At the end of Ecclesiastes, this is what the wisest man ever to live says. He says, it comes down to this for everybody. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. Let us pray. Oh, God, forgive us when we've gotten too familiar. Forgive us when we haven't been reverent to you. Forgive us when we've used your name in the wrong way. Forgive us when we have forgotten your power, your holiness, your love, and your majesty. Well, God, maybe there's someone watching by way of television or someone even in this room who needs to say, this is my day to come and commit myself to a relationship with the most powerful being, the one who was and is and is to come. There's only one way to do that, oh God, and that's through your Son, the form in which you put on flesh to know us and love us, die for us and rise again. Maybe there are others this morning who feel called to be part of a church that will preach the uncompromised truth, even a sermon like this about fear and reverence and awe. And those are the last things that our culture would call us to do. Give us your grace and your peace. And God, I pray if there's someone here this morning who, who feels your call on her life or his life or family's life, but even today they would come. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.